0: here in just a moment. Psalm 132. We are nearly done with our series called Psalms for the Journey. It's a journey through the songs of ascent and they are 15 songs sung by pilgrims like us on our journey toward God. These 15 songs or psalms were literally sung by people walking on the road to the temple to celebrate the big festivals like Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles that you can read about in the Old Testament. Unlike those pilgrims, these songs are for us today on our road trips through our everyday lives. And we have made it through 12 tracks and tonight we land on track 13 in our road trip CD. And the song that we're looking at, track 13, buried near the bottom of the album, where every other song has been two and a half, three and a half minutes, a nice singer-songwriter kind of song, or a big rock anthem, this psalm is that eight-minute, thoughtful, Heady, the kind that John Brunco would love with a long brooding intro with all of these guitar effects. And it has the solo toward the end. And then Jeremiah would start to do all the fills on the drums. And it's this eight minute long kind of uh, ancient, rooted, old feeling, mystical song. That's what Psalm 132 is. It's a different kind of song than the other songs of ascent. I just told you it's different because it's longer. It's also different because it's older. Most of the Psalms of Ascent were written a long time after the exile. The exile was a huge deal. Maybe the two biggest deals in the Old Testament is the exodus when God's people were saved from slavery... And then years and years and years later, the exile is when they got kicked back into slavery with Babylon. These songs were written after that exile, and they started to dream again about going back to the temple. This is a psalm that was written way long before when things were good with a good king in a good temple. So this is like a throwback. It's longer. It's older. And the third thing, and this is what we're going to spend the majority of our time unpacking this evening. It's a remix. Some Psalms are retellings. You can look at places like Psalm 136. And it talks about the story of Moses and Israel. It's a retelling. This Psalm is a remix. Before we read it, I want to talk to you about remixes to help us understand it. I've gotten into electronic music more and more in the last couple of years because I like to have things with a beat that are kind of instrumental while I'm studying, reading, and working. And a group I came across a few years back is called the Avalanches. The Avalanches is an electronic duo from Australia. And their classic debut is called Since I Left You. Do yourself a favor tonight and look up the title track as a YouTube music video, Since I Left You. And then, if you really want to smile, look at one of their later songs, their newer song that came out in 2016 called Because I'm Me. You'll thank me later. But back to the avalanches. They're this electronic group. And the reason they kind of exploded onto the scene over 20 years ago was because their electronic music was made almost entirely of old samples. Y'all familiar with what a sample is in music? Most notably in hip hop, you hear a sound from an old vinyl record and you capture it on a little machine called a sampler. And you take this horn section or this drum beat or this chorus and you take a little snip of it and you add this little puzzle piece to a whole new song and you work all these different pieces together. You take all the different samples and you make it one thing. Kind of like walking through Sam's, grabbing all the little cheese and cracker samples and calling it dinner, right? This is what they're doing. The reason I mention the Avalanches is because their debut record is legendary. And the legend goes that in their 18 tracks, they used 3,500 samples. What's the math breakdown per song? 3,500 samples, a little thing from this Japanese rap artist, a little Madonna mixed in with a little 60s soul Her 18 tracks, all of these different things wedged into something that's not quite a retelling. It's a remix. That's what Psalm 132 is. It's a conversational song made up of samples all throughout the Old Testament in two different halves. The first half is a conversation of David's promise to God and him trying to deliver that promise. The second half is God's promise to David and him delivering on that promise. But in this new song, this eight minute long, uh, weird, different, old song, we have at least 30 chapters of the Old Testament sampled to create something new. This psalm. I could go down the list and you could write down 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, and 6. And then 20 years later, 2 Samuel chapters 5, 6, 7. But it references something from Exodus chapter 25. It references 1 Kings 2, 2 Chronicles. He takes a little bit of a horn section from the Exodus. He takes a big drum beat from 1 Samuel. Then he mixes on top of that a bass line from 2 Samuel. And we have this conversational song that is toward the end of the Songs of Ascent. And for the pilgrims headed to David's city, Jerusalem, singing this song. They don't need to be told where everything came from. They just know it. They know it by the sound of it. Just like the throwbacks you hear from the avalanches, you say, man, that thing sounds like the temptations. Oh, this sounds like Madonna. They hear elements of the story of their king and their people and their God. And this old song takes them back to the old days and they can't help but sing and feel and taste what it must have been like with King David. And listen, this is important. It's gathering together in the present and reflecting back on the past that gives you the energy to go back to the journey and trust God with your future. Imagine these pilgrims standing in the temple, thinking back to the past tasting and smelling it in the present and drawing just enough hope and courage and grounding themselves to say, if God did it then, then maybe he can do it in the future. Are we no different in what we're doing tonight? With or without a projector, we gather because God has been with us and he's faithful to the end. Amen. Amen. And we do the old songs and the old stories and we hear the samples of God's word and we get it into our bones so that we say, if he's been good enough then and I can see it and smell it and hear it and taste it now, I can go back into the chaos of my week, trusting God with my future. That's why we sing these old songs week after week after week. I want to read Psalm 132, it's long, and I want to do something interesting and different. I don't want to talk about the pieces of the psalm as much as I want to talk about the significance of its whole, the significance of an old song finding new life for a community worshiping God together. So we're going to read this song, I'm not going to talk about every little nuance or piece, We're going to talk about the whole big enchilada, okay? Join me in Psalm 132. It's not on the screen, front or back, so I hope you have swiped there or turned there. Psalm 132. Lord, remember David in all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the Mighty One of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until i find a place for the lord a dwelling for the mighty one of jacob basically he's saying i ain't going to sleep until god has a house to rest in verse 6 we heard it in ephathra we came upon it in the fields of Jaar. let us go to his dwelling place let us worship at his footstool hold on to that saying Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. Pause real quick. That's the first half of the conversation. David makes a promise. David delivers on the promise. And David's buddies and his choir says, hey, God, We've rolled out the red carpet. We've got a place for you to come and rest in the temple. Okay, let's hear God's side of the conversation. Verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David. So now God is making a promise. A sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. Pause there. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. God says, I found my house on Zillow. It's Zion. I love the neighborhood. It's got great schools. You're great neighbors. I'm going to live there. Okay? Verse 14. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. Pause there. He's talking about this air that's going to reign forever. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Basically, they will not be victorious. They'll wear the clothes of shame, but my king will be crowned and adorned forevermore. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Next weekend... I'll be in Austin, Lord willing, for a Formula One race with my brother and Jeremiah and John. That's why Jeremiah got all the drum fills in tonight. It was awesome. The thing about Formula One is that it sells out because this is the only race in America at the moment. And so we bought these tickets when? Like May? April? And so they mail you your ticket. But your ticket is not a ticket, it's a bracelet. (laughs) They mail you a bracelet in a priority mail envelope. And this is important because it's your ticket that's expensive. And it's also your wallet. You use it to scan yourself into the event. It's a three-day event. So you wear it all weekend. And you go up, you pay with it. And it gets you access to where you need to be. So, it looks like this. (laughs) So yesterday morning at 6.30 a.m., we wake the girls up. We're getting them ready for school. And I walk into the bathroom and I slip on this pink bracelet. Because I say, one week, girls, one week from today, we're heading down to Austin for the race. And the girls say, ooh, it's pink and it's shiny because I had just opened it up. And then Amy says, ooh, you boys are going to have a lot of fun at your princess birthday party. And I say, ha, ha, ha. And as they're laughing and as we're talking, I start tightening. And I tighten this bracelet and I say, "Yep, yeah, one week from today. And that's when we get on with our morning I go and pour the coffee, and I say, oh, yeah, let me take this off. And I pull at it, and it doesn't come off. I say, oh, yeah, there's probably a button that I got to release, and it doesn't come off. And I say, let me check the instructions. So I go into the priority mail box, and I pull out a slip of white paper. And it says, important instructions regarding your wristband for the Circuit of the Americas. And the very first thing it says after that, do not put on until the event. The next thing it says, do not cut, twist, glue, tamper, or remove in such a way that destroys it. If it is tampered with, it is invalid. So I walk back into the bathroom and, oh, so calm, a picture of peace and rest. I say, honey, please get this off of me. And we go and we start rooting through the medicine cabinet. We start picking at it. And then I say, wait. If it's glued, cut, tampered, torn, twisted, invalid. I said they're sold out. They're sold out for so long. And I am still just a picture of serenity and calm. And she and the girls are dying with laughter. They're roasting me. And I am sitting here thinking two things. This is my life for a whole week. And number two, at least this will be a sermon illustration. Because if only I had read the instructions. If only I had read the instructions, maybe I wouldn't have acted so rashly and just tightened it up. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten stuck for a week. Because let me tell you how fun it was to shower with it immediately after this whole incident. Maybe I wouldn't have gotten so angry. And maybe I wouldn't have gotten so worried because as I was walking through my neighborhood praying, I literally prayed for a microchip inside of my bracelet. God, please keep this microchip healthy and surrounded and active for a whole week so that I can go into this race and not just be a chauffeur driving them down to Austin So I can go eat at Franklin's or whatever. I cannot believe I did this. And the other silver lining is that I texted Jeremiah and I said, I'm about to send you a picture that will make your day and ruin my week. And on we went. And I'm glad you got that enjoyment. If only I had read the instructions. And the thing that I'm trying to piece together with why this psalm is so interesting and unique to me is because it's written from somebody who had embodied the Word and the instructions and they had understood what's important to life and what happens when people lose contact or ignore or set aside the thousands of years of faithful witness in Scripture and in the people of God. What happens when we lose contact, ignore, set aside the instructions, what happens when we lose our place in the story of Scripture. One of the things we haven't talked about in the Songs of Ascent that is so crucial to the book of Psalms is how often they remix and retell the story of Israel so that they can move forward by understanding their past and getting a taste of it in the present. And I'm afraid that what happens to us today when we don't read the instructions and get the story embodied into our lives and our community, is we start to use this as a hammer in our culture to tear people down and knock them into a form and a shape instead of using a hammer to build up a sturdy foundation on which we can build our lives in our community. What happens when we cherry-pick verses and parts And stories, and we lose the shape and sense of the whole story of God reconciling and renewing the world to Himself. What happens? when we get tossed around with different trends, ideas, or whims, and we go back to reinvent the wheel, when there's a man named Jesus who embodied all that came before him and shows us here is the way to life and light. And we go about reinventing the wheel and going and scratching our heads and looking everywhere else. What if we read and embodied the story So there are many stories that are told and that we tell ourselves, and this is our big idea, but nothing grounds our past, guides our present, and guards our future like God's story, and this is what Psalm 132 is a testament of. It's grounded in Israel's story. You may not hear every detail, but when you hear the samples coming through, you can place the era and the origin of what those drums and horns and guitars sounds like. The pilgrims knew this story well. It'd be like if I asked you to tell me the nativity story of Jesus. If I went to a Christian and, told, and said, tell me the story of Christians, of, of of Christmas, you would be able to tell me the story. This is what's true within this psalm. And the central story they're telling is the story of the ark. And I had a picture of the ark, but we're going to talk about the ark because maybe the first thing you think of is Indiana Jones. <laughs> and yes, that's the ark that I'm talking about, but no, I don't think it melts Nazis' faces. I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Kids... Go back to coloring. Everything's okay. The central story that they're embodying and that's coming out of this psalm is around the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to talk about it for just a moment because we don't often talk about it. But the Ark is central. David wouldn't sleep until he found the Ark and brought it back to Jerusalem. That's what's happening in the first half of this psalm. Then when the psalm says we heard about it in Ephrata, that's the region where Bethlehem, David's city is. And we thought it was in Jaar. Do you remember this in the middle of the psalm? That talks about in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel when the ark was stolen. And then it kind of caused a bunch of trouble from the Philistines who stole it. So they gave it back. They were so freaked out by the ark that they sent it on some animals and just kicked the animals and said, go, go go back to Israel. This is in first Samuel, one of the songs they sample. And then when it finally winds up with the Israelite people, it just stays there. Can you imagine this sacred thing of the ark that we're about to describe what it is? Just staying in some little village for, listen, 20 years. So David gets word that it's been in this little village for 20 years. So he says, I'm not going to sleep until I can bring this thing safely back to this place where we can worship God. Write down Exodus 25. That's when he talks about, Moses does, the ark. And they talk about building this box. That's about four feet long. It's about two and a half feet tall two and a half feet deep, and it's gold-plated. And do you remember what sat on top of the ark's lid? It's two little statues, cherubim. These are these angels. And so this little four-foot-long box, gold-plated, with these cherubim sitting on top, contain... Do you remember what's inside of it? It's in Exodus 25, the Ten Commandments... Hebrews, the New Testament book, says there's also some manna in there, some manna cakes, and Aaron's statue. That's why in Indiana Jones, they're trying to find it, because it was the most sacred artifact, something they could look and see in Israel. So this box with the cherubim on top, that's what it was literally, physically, kept in the holiest of holies, was seen as God's footstool, and where the cherubim sat on top was what's called the mercy seat. This is the holiest space, and it's about the size of a toy chest, and why this is so significant is it's the visible witness of the invisible God, because you have to remember that all of their neighbors had giant statues Or they had little carved trinkets. And they said, here's our God. And Israel would take this box and say, this is not our God. Our God is bigger than this box. The reason this is so significant is because it did at least three things to them. It says God is with us. That's why the psalmist says, we want you to settle down. Kick your feet up. Put your footstool down. Come and dwell with us. Do you think David and his people felt more secure with the holiest artifact in his people, in their temple, in their space, where their priests could go to the mercy seat and see in the holiest of holies a visible representation of a big, invisible God? Do you see how important this is? That's why this song is remixing and retelling this. So when the pilgrims show up, they're like, yo, this is where the ark is. It's why people in America go to Washington, D.C., and they say, whoa, this is where the Lincoln Memorial is. But imagine something so much smaller, yet so much more profound. It wasn't just that God was with us. It also says that God goes ahead of us. They would take the ark and they would go 2,000 feet in front of the people marching in the wilderness or 2,000 feet in front of the people marching into battle. How do you think the pilgrims felt in the wilderness knowing that God was up there leading our people through the wilderness? How do you think the armies of Israel felt when 2,000 feet up ahead, God is going ahead of us into the struggle. God is with us. God goes ahead of us. And it also says, hey guys, remember, Philistines, you took it, but God is bigger than this box. So now the ark is lost and we don't know where it is But praise God, he's bigger than a box. The Hebrews understand this, and we understand it too. But this is the story that's being sung. They didn't need a note-for-note retelling. The remix was enough to remind them of what God had done in the past. It inspires them and elevates them in God's temple in the present so that they can go forward into the future. Understanding God's story grounds our past, guides our present, and guards our future. So, they're singing these songs just like we're singing songs tonight. They're worshiping and bringing sacrifices like we bring offerings in our time. They're hearing scripture like you heard scripture tonight. They're feasting together like at Passover. And every week at the neighborhood church, we have Jesus' Passover meal known as communion or Eucharist. We have people reconnecting with family. This is the thing about the Songs of Ascent. Not only are they excited to go and worship because it's like Christmas and Easter, they're excited to go and reconnect with their long-lost cousins coming from distant lands Just like you, wherever you've come from, Garland, Wiley, Dallas, Richardson, you have gathered together to reconnect. And just as Maria remind us, kids, you're a part of a bigger family in the kingdom of God. This song may as well be a song for us when we sing and worship and remember our roots and our past. So what I'm trying to inspire you without telling you, I'm trying to inspire you to draw your life's meaning by marinating in Scripture and the story of God. What would it look like if your prayers were soaked in Scripture? You know, let me give you a pastor cheat code. When people ask me to pray for them and they do every week in different ways And for different things. I always draw from the Psalms and other passages in scripture. I don't just go out and freestyle. I consult the sheet music. And I build and remix and sample from what the saints have prayed before. Because there's power in these words when we pray scripture. Have you ever tried that? What would it look like this week if someone you know that's struggling, go to the YouVersion Bible app. You can click a verse. You can make a fancy, fun image or picture. I've sent some of them to you when you're having a surgery or a difficult time. And you just shoot off your favorite verse from a psalm. What would it do to have scripture-soaked prayers? What would it look like to have scripture-soaked stories? What are the stories you share with your kids and others? That reminds me of the story Jesus told when there is a son that went to a far country and he, he blew it. He had a huge mistake. And he thought for sure his father wouldn't ever want him to come home. He was so ashamed. But how did the father greet him? He was waiting and looking on the horizon. He wrapped him up in arms of love and says, I'm so glad you're back, son. Hey, You've blown it, but I love you just like that father. God loves us when we blow it. I love you when you blow it. What would it look like if the stories we tell and retell are scripture soaked? You with me on this? What would it look like if our dreams To serve and go and do were bigger than me, me, me. And they were given shape by people who've given their lives to lift up others in service and charity and love. To look at the life of Paul who burned his whole life out to pour out God's love to everyone he encountered. What if we had scripture-soaked dreams And what if our kids were rooted and grounded in the story of God? Not just the stories, but they understand the big swoop of the reconciling work of God. I love to say in our children's ministry meetings that we are discipling future disciples. I believe that God has said yes to every person that's living and breathing on earth right now. God has said yes to the world because he sent Jesus to die and forgive and to show the world what God's love looks like with a face. He has said yes to every one of our kids. And so until they say yes back, Jesus, I want to follow you with my whole life, we're marinating them in the word of God, in the ways of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. It's one thing to know Bible facts It's another thing to know the God of the Bible. We want both. We don't just want them to know the story of King David. We want them to be little Davids as people after God's own heart. We want to facilitate encounters with love and service and neighbor. So bring them to the clothes closet. We want them to come to VBS. We want them to party for Halloween. We want them to be discipled in the community of faith so that they won't turn away from it when they graduate. And that when they graduate, they can step into a world of different people and different ideas, confident of who they are and whose they are, a beloved child of God. And when they see others, they see Christ in them and invite them to say yes also. This is my dream for our kids. And I know it's different right now because we're doing it in here. Hold on. There's going to be a time when we can all feel good and all feel safe about it and help facilitate that marinade even more again soon. Amen? But this is my passion, and it takes all of us. It takes you. I want to help you. But parents, to soak them in the love of God that they can overflow into love of others, our values, our decisions, all marinated in God's story. Because the longer our lives have been marinated in God's story, the more our lives embody the flavors of the kingdom of God, forgiveness, joy, peace, patience mercy it's not just because you know the facts it's because the facts have gotten to know you and is embedded in you and you get to live them out because you know not just the bible but the god of the bible because there's too many false stories that you tell yourself about what's most important let this be a corrective there's too many small stories that we hear about what you do for work and what you need to buy let this be a corrective there's too many destructive stories in the name of Jesus that are getting trafficked and we need this to be a corrective we need to be good bible readers and to get the story into us so i want to close by telling you what is this story anyway And I want to tell you in less than seven minutes, and I'm going to read a quote, and then we're going to be done. And everyone's saying, yeah, right, seven minutes. Get a phone. Set a timer. I'm going to give you the whole story of the Bible in seven minutes. Some of the kids and youth may be familiar with this, but listen up because it may sound a little bit different. Who's got Timers. You got it? I'm going to do it too. (laughs) Lynette, you were way too eager with that timer. (laughs) I'm going to do it. Ready? What is this story anyway? Ready? On your mark, get set, go. In the beginning, God created all things. He also created us. He created us in his image And kids, that means we were special. More than the fish and the animals, He created us in His image. And whatever that image means, it means at least that we should be in relationship with God and partnership with God. So our first parents were called Adam and Eve. And God said, hey, let's walk together, talk together, let's love each other. And they said, cool, let's do it. And then God said, but also I just made this big, beautiful creation. Would you help me take care of it? Let's be in a partnership. And they say, cool, let's do it. Until a serpent comes and they say, nah, we don't want to do it. We want to do our own way. And this grieved God's heart. And the Bible's word for going our own way and turning our back is called sin. So that's the part of the story very early on that you might think that God does what? Do you think God turns his back? No, no. God says, you may have turned your back, but I promise you one day I will deal with sin, which brought death. So I'm going to deal with death, too. And this is evil, but I'm going to deal with evil once and for all. Well, we had kids and kids and kids, and finally there was a guy named Abraham. And God calls Abraham and says, hey, let's be in a relationship and partnership And I know that you're old and you don't have kids, but I'm going to make sure that you have a kid and a family. And through your family, every family is going to get blessed. And Abraham says, ha ha, nope, no way. I'll have a kid my way. Thank you very much. And he turns his back. But God says, yeah, I'm not going to turn my back on you. I meant what I said. And one day I promise that every family on earth will be blessed through your family. Well, his family got really big and they became enslaved by Egypt and they became known as the Hebrew people. And God sent Moses to free them. And then he brought them and says, you're going to be in a relationship and a partnership with me and I'm going to show you the way to live. And they said, yeah, that sounds great. Until like very quickly they said, nah, we're going to do our own thing. Actually, we're going to make our own God. And so this is the part where God says, "Man, this keeps happening. I'm going to turn my back on them, right?" No, God says, "Fine, fine, fine. Listen, because we're still in a relationship, I'm going to honor it. I'm making you a nation, and you're going to be a light to all nations. And one day, I'm going to write the law in your hearts." And so then they say, "Okay, fine," but they keep going, and generations later, they say, "You know what, God? We want a king we can see." So they turn their back and say, "Give us a king." And they had a king named David who is referenced in this psalm. And David, he turned his back on God. Even though he's, he loved God, he still made a lot of mistakes. But God says, David, you're a great king, but I'm going to tell you, one day, like we read in our psalm, there's going to be a king that comes from your family, from your nation, and he's going to be a king forever, and he's going to be the best king. Then... The kings that David had after were really a mess. And one by one by one, all these kings turned, whoops, all these kings turned their backs on God. And so God sent prophets. And the prophets said, hey, God is telling you, turn back. God is turning himself to you, so turn your hearts and lives back. That's what all of those books. In the prophets are about, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah. They're all speaking on behalf of God saying, the way of life is when you turn back to me. The way of death is when you turn your back again. And for a while, there was nothing. But the prophets kept saying, I'm going to send my Messiah, the anointed one who will come and turn hearts and lives back to me ultimately, one day. So what happens is God does send that Messiah, and his name is Jesus. And some of those prophets called him Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. So all of a sudden, God has put on the flesh and blood. It's God con carne, with meat. (laughs) And so what happens is Jesus begins to show the world what God looks like in flesh and blood. More than an ark, more than a tabernacle, more than a temple. This is a living, breathing person who walked and talked with people that no one wanted to walk and talk with. And Jesus began to touch and heal and reverse sin, death, and evil right before their face. And you know what we did? We turned our back on Him. And we crucified Him. But what God did was continue to turn toward humanity and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so Jesus died, but then Jesus rose again so that sin, death, and evil really would be taken care of. And this Jesus is the one that dealt with sin, death, and evil. And this Jesus is the one through whom all families would be blessed as he creates a kingdom family. This Jesus is the one that is writing the law on our hearts because he gave us the Holy Spirit that could dwell within us, not just with us. Jesus is the one who is the reigning king, the Messiah, the one who sits on a throne forever. He's turning hearts and lives back and showing the world that God has never turned his back on you. And so the life that Jesus gives is the life that's been on offer from the very beginning and it's going to be on offer through the very end. The story is this. The Bible is telling of how God gives his own son, Israel's king and the world's true Lord to rescue humanity and renew the world so we can share God's life now and forever That's the story worth giving your life to. That's the story the whole Bible has been telling. Amen? Amen. How am I on my time? Amen. This is the story worth giving our life to. The story the apostles called the gospel. It's the story that we are inviting you into for the first time or the thousandth time. Because it will... Guide your present and guard your future because you've embodied this. So here's the quote, and then we're going to be done. Eugene Peterson writes in his book on the songs of ascent, a long obedience in the same direction, and it's there in your handout. With the biblical memory, we have 2000 years of experience from which to make off the cuff responses (laughs) that are required each day in the life of faith. If we are going to live adequately and maturely as the people of God, we need more data to work from than our own experience can give us. A Christian who has David in his bones, Jeremiah in his bloodstream, Paul in his fingertips, and Christ in his heart will know how much and how little value to put on his own momentary feelings and the experience Of the past week. Because, friends, we have something bigger that is surrounding and sustaining and calling you. Amen? So, may we live God's story in our bones so that we may live it to a watching world in our everyday lives. Father, we are grateful for this time to be reminded of this story in the Psalms that points to an even bigger story that you are continually telling. And that is one who has made his home among us and in us so that you might share your life with us. Please bless us and keep us. And may we leave this place in a moment, having remembered something here that can help us in the weeks ahead. But more than anything, may we remember to make time for you and your story. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. May the holy wisdom of God guard your ways and guide your paths. May the living truth of God enlighten your hearts and open your minds. May the expanding story of God surround your community and sustain your journey. And may the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit go before you into your everyday places, and surprise you with grace upon grace until we meet again. Go in peace.